Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations podcast, episode 17. I'm Dr. Lindsay Doe, clinical sexologist and host of the YouTube channel Sexplanations. Today, we are on the podcast with a very special friend of mine, Ann Harris. And can you tell the audience about yourself? Because I feel like there's so much about you. Uh, hmm. You could probably summarize better. Where to begin? Um, I'm a mother, grandmother. I am transgendered. I am a licensed professional counselor. Been doing that about 40 years. I work a lot with high trauma people, people with problems with violence, sexual sexuality issues, and coach a lot of families with transgendered children these days. Wow, you're doing so many cool things in the community. Yeah, it's just it's just out there. And we uh, got a new nonprofit going, which is slowly going to begin a series of talks at the public library. Ooh. Last year, we did polyamory with uh, Elizabeth Sheff and awesome. some other guests. And this year, we're going to go back to how to raise children and how to become an askable parent. For which Aww. I may invite you to come down and participate a little bit. I would love to. Great. Wow, what a special thing you're doing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. To um, A little over two years ago, I quit working for another nonprofit where I'd been for 11 years. And it was exciting to go back into private practice and to go back into private practice in the exact same suite of rooms that I rented 35 years ago when I first opened a, my own private practice. Aww. So it was like a coming home week at, you know, the other end <laughs> of the hall from where you and I had some rooms for, or you still have a room. Yeah, I, yeah. I do. I am in that space. And actually, when I was first in that space is when I got a call from you. And we didn't know each other at the time, but I think you were looking maybe for a model to demonstrate how to put condoms on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you called me on the phone, and we got to talking, and I had just finished my doctorate or was working on it, um, mm -hmm. going back and forth to San Francisco. And I, I felt like my community in Missoula was so vanilla, and I didn't know any of the <laughs> you know, other flavors, people who were expressing sexuality in all the diverse ways that I was seeing in San Francisco. And so when you and I got on the phone, I was like, Anne. Yeah, it, it's gotten wilder in the last two years. I'm re-involved actively with the local kink community wow. and working with poly families and people who have struggles around wanting to do things like uh, some types of kink behavior, which would be a different show, I assume. But, you know, um, just opened up that whole area of my own personal interests in helping people feel comfortable with their bodies, mm -hmm. no matter shape, size, or gender, and to do the things they want to do with them. And at 68 years of age, I'll buck any criticism in doing <laughs> that work. I don't care. <laughs> I love it, and I appreciate it, and I am so glad that you are this flavorful person in my life. And then, huh. you know, from that conversation, both of us have gone out into the, the world, oh, really, yeah. done our own things, and then we've come back to that same office space with our side-by-side right. -side private practices, and we get to do it all again. And I'm just so impressed by what, you, what you've been doing the last couple of years with Sexplanations. It is the most outstanding, crisp, clean Aww. discussion on sexuality that's ever been on. And I've looked at others <laughs> and uh, you just sparkle right through professionally. Oh, thank you. And amusing as well. 
<laughs> well, wow. I hope we can have some amusement <laughs> here today. My goal is for us to talk about the episode about heterosexuals being the first perverts and that whole idea around right. um, how we get our language, sexual orientation, what it means to be heterosexual, etc. But before we do that... Mm-hmm. Um, I want to give a shout out to the people on Patreon that give a very generous donation to the show. Laura Schuster, Donna Flint, Matty O'Sullivan, Paul Nixon, and the Millers. I'm so thankful for everyone on Patreon who makes this possible, really. That's how the show is funded. Um, These folks in particular get a question each week in their honor. Now it's time to hold our testes. Which of the following statements isn't true? A, the term heterosexual was first published in the translation of the book Psychopathia Sexualis. B, even though heterosexual was coined in the 1800s, it wasn't until the 1960s that it was commonly used. C, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary first defined heterosexuality as morbid sexual passion for one of the opposite sex. Or D, people who identify as heterosexual only have sexual contact with people of the opposite sex. I believe... It wasn't Merriam-Webster. It was Dorland's medical dictionary. And I believe the psychopathia may have been the absolute first. Okay. So A. You think that A is the one that is false? Oh, oh, no, that's true. (laughs) Oh, I was, was oh my God, I was looking for truth and not falsehood. Oh. I can read them again. Do you want me to read them again? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So what everybody else? And we think that, yes, I agree. A, <laughs> so we think that A is probably true, but I'll read it again. Which of the following statements isn't true? Or if it helps to understand which of the following statements is false. There, thank you. You're welcome. A, the term heterosexual was first published in a translation of the book Psychopathia Sexualis. B, even though heterosexual was coined in the 1800s, it wasn't until the 1960s that it was commonly used. C, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary first defined heterosexuality as morbid sexual passion for one of the opposite sex. Or D, people who identify as heterosexual only have sexual contact with people of the opposite sex. Oh, now i got to pick the false out. Yeah. Well, because I don't believe people are truthful. (laughs) (laughs) According to Kinsey, uh, the, the, the D seems the most false, but... Coming into common usage in the 1960s, I hate these questions. <laughs> it's a common usage. Yeah, it's not fair. That's It's not operationalized. You know, what was the date for Merriam-Webster? I don't have the date. Okay. Um, I'll go with Merriam-Webster as, no, no, that was true too because they, <laughs> they co- I'm going to stick with D. That was my first Yay! choice and I'm willing to be wrong. No, you're <laughs> You're right. You're right. So the truth is that the term heterosexual was first published in the translation of Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, that it was coined in the 1800s but wasn't popularized until the 1960s, and that as a dictionary definition, the original dictionary definition was a morbid sexual passion Mm -hmm. for one of the opposite sex. All of that is true. Or an abnormal and perverted attraction to the opposite sex exactly. was in the medical dictionaries. Right. Well, and— Turn of the century. 
what we get from the whole video on heterosexuality as the original or first perversion mm -hmm. is that hetero was referring to other or different right. sexuality, meaning anything that constituted a behaviors, attraction, et cetera, outside of sex in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Right. Now, so I wondered a bit further about that if it wasn't also simply restricted to procreative sex. Right, if, right, right. If that yes. had been the no. general assumption that it was only for baby making yes. and not for pleasure. You're correct. Yeah. So that means that most people these days are heterosexual by that definition. I guess statistically that would be true. That homosexuality is a form of heterosexuality. Oh, go on. <laughs> go Just on. in that that homosexuality is an expression is of sexuality yeah. that is outside of sex for procreation. Right. So yeah, that fits. And homosexuality, you know, I, I, I always love the when some of the well, I'll just call them the fearful people. Mm -hmm. Um go and say, well, if we condone sex with the people of the same sex, mm -hmm. then we'll end up approving sex with doorknobs or, you know, that that'll be a legal marriage. And the whole, you know, people only seem to get upset about this when it comes into the context of marriage. And we don't go to churches to get a license. We go to the government. Mm -hmm. And our government was supposed to be based on religious freedom or lack thereof a religion to be free to have whatever you want to do for your life. And so the arguments go round and round. Mm -hmm. And this whole criticism of somebody's gender and sex and sexual orientation and gender orientation or the way we express a gender Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a while, the the transgendered people had they had we had a loophole because our legal papers would identify us not by our birth gender but by a court ordered name change and gender change, and therefore, a person who was born male could marry another male, but married them as a female transgendered. Mm -hmm. And um, then that loophole began to close, and oi, now the bathroom bills, oi. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so it, it, it all seems to spin off. And I wished I were a better historian about, you know, spinning off of the whole notion that we have to all be the same. And that kind of begins to argue back to when we lost individuality in the evolution of industry. Uh, and tell the, me more. And the education system began to educate people as if they were getting ready to be made machine parts, kind of like uh, Pink Floyd did in another Brick in the Wall uh, video and their music reflecting that, you know, we have a culture that became mechanized and not varied because I, I know that when people work the land mm. in an agrarian economy, You've got to be prepared to sharpen steel, plant a seed, weed a garden, harvest a garden, store the products from the garden. You have to do so many different things, which now in a mechanized agrarian economy is all specialized. A person only does the weeding, the fertilization, the harvesting, the storage, the marketing, and all that. All of that used to be, I pick my vegetables, I load them on my in a wagon, mm -hmm. I go to town, and I sell my vegetables and I get paid in maybe chickens 
or, you know, mm-hmm. the coin of the realm. But there was a, a time when we didn't expect people to have to be narrowly defined as, I do code writing, and I only do code writing for these computers using this language, and I'm specialized in that, or I'm a teacher and I only teach science, or I was trained to put the bumper on the Ford as it came down the line. I don't do steering wheels. I don't do brake lights. I do the bumper and just on this so much specialization and identification and the sexuality just seemed to fall for people into the binary. It fell into you're male or you're female or we don't know what to do with you, which left, I think, one in 1,000 births in space because one in 1,000, I think, is the statistic for people born with a sexual anomaly Mm-hmm. as part of their physiology. I think that was the most recent statistic I read, which makes that much more common. Oh, yeah. Well, my guess is that it's even pe- more common than that. But Yeah. Well, one in a thousand is pretty high. <laughs> yeah. You know? You're so, referring to intersex individuals. Yeah, intersex individuals or in, and who aren't necessarily visibly identified as that. So heterosexuality, homosexuality, you're either... You know, what, what they used to call AC or DC. You know, you're, you're one brand of this or one brand of that. And we don't allow for all the colors in the rainbow, you know, to be a part of our sexual expression, our um, sexual identity, and the way we choose to display not just our sexuality and our preferences, but also our gender identity. I'm seeing an increasing number of people, and I, this is confusing for others. It gets confusing for me when a client walks in, a new client, and I can't tell from the minute they walk in the door what gender they were born, or maybe if they're wanting to change gender, just don't know. And this is true of the 14-year-olds that come with their parents or some of the adults that I see who are defining themselves as gender fluid or gender binary. And that really is going to change these loops about heterosexuality and homosexuality. If people are living as one gender, but their genital configuration doesn't match the way they're living, but they don't care because they're going to love who they're going to love. And the configuration of their partner may be irrelevant to them. Mm -hmm. And it throws this hetero-homo thing out the window. Yay! Um, Well, (laughs) yeah. You know, uh, people get to be people. And yet we have, in preparation for some of our podcasts, we have what we call front porch talks. Mm -hmm. And a couple of the volunteers come over and we turn on the recorder and we just freeform thought. And yesterday we were getting on to the effect of social media on anger and social media on extended thought. What do you get? I've never tweeted, but I think you get... or I've never Twittered or whatever it is, you know, 146 characters or something. You know, it's not very much thought that goes into that expression. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of like I, I wish those people would write haiku in preparation for doing a tweet because then they could maybe f- put some actual linguistic meaning and thought behind what they're putting out. But that goes around so fast and adds to the a social anger mill, and it is a very excitable emotion within human beings, you know, which gets back to part of my earlier career work of working with anger management with people. 
which was all, we mentioned language a while ago. It's all about getting somebody to slow down their limbic fight or flight response to engage enough of their thinking to respond instead of react to a perceived threat. And for the people I work with, both males and females that went through my classes, the people who get that really get it. They've come up to me on the street later and said, my life changed because I began to listen to my own thinking. Um, mm. There's fancy words for that, <laughs> you know, dialectical behavioral therapy and all that. But I, I didn't bother with introducing it with the high-minded stuff because most of these, most of the people I worked with, very few of them had college educations. Their language was high school, graduate level. And so we got it down to very basic rules that helped them survive better and to listen to their own internal dialogue and how that directs our behavior. Okay. I like it. Okay. That was, how's that for a ramble? I don't take it as a ramble. I, I really appreciate it. What I am learning is that there is possibly this um, cultural reason that we started categorizing people and that the body parts we have maybe got caught up in that, that um, somebody who is assigned male or female or intersex at birth mm -hmm. will then have a gender that is non-binary or mm -hmm. gender queer or gender fluid, et cetera, and that that is going to mess with the kind of legislation that we have about who gets to be with whom, and it's just going to crack open these boxes, and it's going to be this wonderful experience. And what else did I take away? Oh, that <laughs> maybe Twitter is not a, a full way to have these conversations because we are responding to each other in these terse and aggressive ways rather than investigating how we might be fighting what is put on Twitter or we may be running from it. And so mm -hmm. you want us to have a, a larger conversation. Here we are. A larger conversation, you know, and appreciating real thought. Where do our cliches and things come from? Where do people get off telling anybody what they can or cannot do with their own bodies? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really cracking it open. Where does that authority come from? I kind of don't get that. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. We were certainly more contained back then. <laughs> more contained. Oh, yeah. And well, and certain evolutions change things. Uh, I was going over the history of birth control because I've always been very proactive with Planned Parenthood and, you know, being able to plan pregnancies and helping people get access to birth control. Thank you. And thinking back to that time in 67, when the pill wasn't universally accepted yet across the country, where I remember before it got FDA approval, it had been being used in Europe, mm -hmm. but our um, our sexual mores didn't want to allow that, you know, in the same misogynistic ways that we don't allow women still to occupy positions of power as easily as we allow men. Mm -hmm. And no one's saying, no, you can't, but mm, the way the votes go. So... Birth control came on the scene. Women could take a daily pill in the morning and not have to worry about getting pregnant if they have sex. Mm -hmm. Or certainly the odds were way, way, way against it rather than, than for it. Right. You know, and um, 
I think I learned from you in a talk a long time ago that condoms are, are very, very, very effective when used properly, but not used properly, um, their effectiveness dwindles tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, And uh, when you think back about all of the... Um, I have a fascinating book here um, that uh, it's called The Bible and the Transgender Experience. But in reading this, going back to most of the sexual prohibitions in biblical terms began with spilling the seed because back then they assumed that the whole being came from the male and was injected into the female through the vaginal cavity, like little babies were coming out of the penis and going in there and growing. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, that was the concept. The first anatomical drawings of spermatozoa have this <laughs> tiny human being in the head of the sperm all yeah. crunched up in a little fetal position. Yeah. Boy, they, can you imagine the first people that put a sperm under a microscope and said, what the heck? I can't imagine those what? people. <laughs> I'm so excited. We hadn't better tell the Pope, you know, and no, no, no shaming specifically on the Catholic Church, but, you know, the Popes were in charge of Christian theology and Christian messaging way until, you know, Luther tacked his edicts on the door after 1,400 years, mm-hmm. you know, and then wars were fought over all that. Oh, my gosh. Western civilization is Produced a lot and as screwy as all hell. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the, the, the Bible and the Transgender Experience by Linda Tetra Herzer. Uh, she is a United Church of Christ minister and uh, was a pastor in Atlanta for many years and had a lot of gender variant and gay members of her congregations, and she decided to go, all right, let's go back and really take a look at the Bible and what it says about all this stuff. Oops. Hmm. She did a very interesting thing. She identified that transgendered or transsexuals were in the Bible, but they were called eunuchs. Ah. And there were prescriptions in the Old Testament about eunuchs were not allowed to handle the holy meal and they couldn't be welcomed into the kingdom and the tribe. And, you know, but when you put it in the cultural context of a small tribe of Israelites trying to survive among these larger other political organizations, well, tribes, Mm -hmm. and that to try to keep your tribe as productive as possible with new humans, then it made sense that we don't want these in here. We only want fertile men and fertile women and actually address that. So it's interesting how then those things get quoted by the more conservative biblical scholars as talking about these modern day interpretations when in fact, when you study further, you find out that, you know, in the New Testament, um, Jesus said, hey, we met the requirements of the old. Here's a new covenant. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter and uh, Paul in their letters to the Corinthians and the Philippians and all of those and Acts, they go out and they say, let the eunuchs in. I mean, my understanding of eunuchs is that they were very important to the choir because you needed oh, young later, people yeah. singing like prepubescent Justin Bieber. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in the pre-church, that wasn't even there. But it was, you know, these are the parts of the Bible that get ignored as, may I say, unique individuals with unique genital configurations have always been a part of of the culture. And there was a time in history around 200 
A.D. where and 100 A.D. where they were actually accepted into the church. You know, it's in the Bible. It was written there. Let these people in. They're okay. Now you know. Yeah. Heard here on the Sexplanations podcast. Yeah. What other books did you bring with you? Um, you know, I've really established a good lending library downtown. This one, um, you may have seen this on my door, The Genderbred Person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can Google The Genderbred Person and get access to the book Social Justice Advocates Handbook, A Guide to Gender, written by Sam Killerman, who was a, uh, a comedian and kept doing lots of jokes about gender and finally said, why they're so funny is people don't know what he's talking about. So he began writing a book, and he explained it as attraction is from our heart, who we have sex with is in our genitals, who we identify as is our brain, and our expression is the whole gender-bred person. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's such a simple way to explain it to people. And it's one of the things that I give parents to say, you have a gender-questioning child. I don't know where that's going to end up when they're, well, the youngest has been three. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parents have allowed them to define their gender as they go along in school. They're now in first grade. And um, this was a genitally configured male who, from the time they could say the word boy or girl, they said, I'm a girl. And the parents were a little freaked out, but they worked with the grandparents and the parents, and they re-educated the family that people maybe get to just choose how they want to express themselves mm-hmm. and has nothing to do with whether or not they will procreate with or who they'll procreate with, Mm -hmm. or if they'll even stay static in that gender identity across time. So gender-bred like gingerbread and has cute picture of a cookie on it. Yeah. And the uh, Raising the the Transgender Child, this is uh, by Michelle Angelo and Alyssa Bowman. And I, I, I began to get, I also have some for teachers because... I have some transgendered female to male students going to one of the local high schools. I'm going to be circumspect about that, and uh, which school anyway. Mm-hmm. But at one of those schools, teachers follow these now identified students into the bathroom they go to. Yes. And monitor them while they're there. And in another high school, no such nonsense, not even in the locker room. And uh, because the students are there to... Learn. Get an education, <laughs> you know, fulfill their requirements, get their high school ticket and go on to life after high school. And they just simply want the permission and the ability which they should have to pee where they want to pee in peace. Right. But there is now a petition circulating statewide to gather signatures to create a ballot measure to restrict public bathrooms, including schools, to what's on your birth certificate. That's bullshit. Well, it it is. It seems totally unenforceable. And, of course, the people putting it forward, it got rejected by the legislative somebody's office who said, you don't even say how much this is going to cost. You don't say how you're going to enforce it. You know, um, I don't even think they put a penalty phase on there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a lot required to write a law. You just don't express your belief and it becomes law. Thank God, you know, or or we'd be living in Margaret Atwood's uh, world of The Handmaid's Tale, which made a huge comeback this year, finally made it to stars or one of the networks. But, you know, it's a book written back in 90s, no, 80s something. I don't remember when she published. I don't um, know either. 
But, you know, are you familiar with the tale? I am not familiar with the tale. I am familiar with the the actor who plays mm. uh, Martin Sheen's daughter in West Wing, which I'm currently very into. Ah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're back watching Will and Grace again because there's a new – 20 years later, they're redoing Will and Grace with the same cast. Uh, which TV will be so socially <laughs> interesting to see. But The Handmaid's Tale is that um, there's a coup and the politicians with religious authority take over the country under a conservative umbrella. And one of the things that happened was we so polluted the environment that fertility became a huge issue. We were not not able to replace our population. Um, and only certain people were impregnatable. Of course, they blamed it on the women, but it turns out it was the men who were also going sterile. And so the, any woman proven to be able to carry a child to term becomes a handmaid to the rich and powerful men who are married, but in, like in the uh, Old Testament terms, they have, you know, the uh, patriarchs often had children on their servants so they could increase the size of the tribe. You know, it, so fiction based in nonfiction. Oh, yeah. And, but a totally oppressive society until you realize and that the rich guys still get to go to nightclubs and fool around and do all these things in secret and it creates this, you know, hierarchical step. And, you know, people are, if, if you have a same-sex relationship, you are tortured, hung, and then your body's hung on a wall. It's called the wall in the book. It is a, a frightening visitation on what would happen if we became as conservative about the way people lead their lives, um, driven by misinterpretations of a loving God through a Bible, in some of the same ways that those crimes are currently punished now in educated countries like Iran, where they still stone people to death for their sexual choices and the way they are sexually. And Iran's not a third world country. Neither was, well, we bombed, we're kind of good at bombing certain countries back into the Stone Age Mm. and disrupting their cultures rather than trying to work alongside them. But in any case, I, I don't want to wander into those weeds. Um, I am not. Those aren't my weeds. I just look at them <laughs> and go, We're getting Whoa. all sorts of smarter here. Wow. Heavy. But, you know, um comes down to it. A person ought to have control over their genitals and what they want to do with them and with their gender identity. Like I said, I have a brand new grandchild. Mm-hmm. Her name is Elizabeth Rose. Rose for short. Um, she is adorable and quite cranky when not fed and uh, or at wet at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I had the pleasure of a couple of whole days with her. And she's, you know, who knows? Elizabeth, although far as you can tell, is, is female. I don't know what gender that this child will be when they grow up. Right. And that's really difficult for parents because, you know, you tend to project your life in concert with a child's life. Mm-hmm. I am the parent of this daughter. I am the parent of this son. 
you know, and the mothers that are picking out wedding dresses when their female child is six years old and they're already planning weddings, mm-hmm. you know, and fathers that are getting ready to walk down the aisle when the child's eight and they're not even dating yet or even close to it. They're still digging worms in the backyard with the boys. Mm-hmm. And then the child comes and says, you know, um, the reason I dig worms in the backyard and play with the Tonka trunks is I'm re- I really think I'm more boy than girl. Mm-hmm. And I want to be, I want to live as a boy. Oy, oh, my God. Freak out. Which That's, hopefully you're seeing less of, though, as awareness increases and education increases, people this, embracing yeah. that that movement. Or what what I think we're going to end up seeing is a total reformation of language where we're, we're not using terms like male, female, gender, mm-hmm. biosex, heterosexual, homosexual, asexual, et cetera. That's all going to be reformatted because – we're coming from mistakes in our language that are built on mistakes in our language, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they're not grounded in what we know about human diversity. Right. Ever since the early 70s, we've played around, or maybe late 60s, we've played around with trying to do gender-neutral terms. And we've experimented like women with a, with a Y and other ways of... It's going to be hard, you know. It's it's difficult for me when I get the gender binary and the gender fluid in. And I, I do therapy groups, um, just regular therapy groups, people that have had rough times, and we come to group to learn more about it and get the support and find out that I'm not the only person who had an angry father and felt bad about it and felt it was like my fault that they got upset. You know, people find out, oh, my God, you you had that too? So, you know, therapy groups are a great way to understand it. But we have, I have non-binary people coming into therapy groups. So the introductions always for the first few weeks is, this is my name and I prefer he, she, Mm -hmm. or they, them. Mm -hmm. Do you ever try to write a report where you you experience a person in, in a gender and they still look and act that way? And you're writing a report to another professional who's going to only see the surface and I have to convert my pronouns to the plurals. Uh, yes, that is my experience with every script of explanations. Oh. <laughs> it becomes easier with time, so so no worries. It, it, it is. It's just that, and then I get the report back. Like I refer somebody for a neuropsych exam, and I get the report back from the neuropsychologist, and they've undone all of that. And oh yeah, sometimes in in the really amusing ones, they switch between he and she. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- they can't go to that other place. Well, we're going to get there. And I I think that one of the things I do is I'll say, this is my friend Anne. Anne is sitting on the couch. Anne is wearing a green sweater. And so the, mm. instead of using pronouns, I'm just repeating the person's name over and over, which is also an unfamiliar in writing to a lot of people for them to read that. But it doesn't matter because I think that the – end goal is it's so important that we have to go through maybe the awkwardness of it to get to the place where we say it's not working we're not being inclusive if we restrict people to that binary system of he or she and if we can't implement gender neutral singular pronouns like zizazer then Mm -hmm. we've got to be open to that third fourth fifth option yeah um, and it'll be a progression, but we've done it before. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we have changed other words, but uh, like I remember when Ms. got introduced to replace Miss and Mrs. And uh, I've been playing recently because when they ask for that definition on certain forms, I go ahead and put Mrs. down just for fun. Mm -hmm. But Ms. was always my first choice. But now it's kind of fun to play with. You know, because I don't, I don't give a rat's ass, you know, <laughs> what, you know, I mean, my name is Anne or Annie, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to bring up one more book. Okay. This was by Meredith Russo. It was called If I Was Your Girl, and it's a fictional autobiography mm-hmm. uh, about a, a character she calls um, Amanda Hardy, who grows up in Lambertville, Tennessee, and talks about the difficulty of Changing Gender in a Mid-Adolescence, and um, it was one of the better written works of fiction because some people, I mean, we don't know the stories. That was one of the evolutions of, of what the media did, and we talked about a show named Will and Grace, mm-hmm. and looking back at the 1998 version of Will and Grace, the men were kissing. And I went, wow, we were in 1998, <laughs> we had men kissing on national TV? We were a little further ahead than I thought. But if you go back to um, anything, you know, in the, well, the 50s, I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. if they even shot a bedroom shot, it was twin beds. Mm-hmm. Like people don't have sex. Or they kick each other in their sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of us have restless legs. That can't be helped. Have, sex helps with that. I have one, one partner who, um, after we tried just, snuggling and sleeping together for a couple nights, said, you, you kick too much, mm-hmm. you know. So we snuggle early, then I sl- slink off to my bed with my main partner. Um, yes, I'm polyamorous. Yes. And, um, you know, but it's hard to do, by the way. Anybody who's thinking about doing open relationships really needs to find out and study what that means because it's hard work. Yeah. Monogamy is hard work. Yeah. It was interesting when you mentioned the title for this weeks ago. I think you said that it was going to be about the, the myth of heterosexuality, but somehow I translated it into monogamy in my head. <laughs> and I went with that. And then I went, no, 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 no. It, it, it's about, oy vey. It gets, um, you know, well, it's, it is what it is right now between us. It's, you know, our, our, Annie and Lindsay alphabet soup of whatever comes up in my brain or your brain. Yeah. Are you keeping us on track? I think we were talking about <laughs> Lucy's bed situation. Oh, yeah. And uh, Rob and Laura Petrie. That's weird. I can remember their their character names. Or I Dream of Jeannie or any of the other sitcoms were about couples. Um, what was the um, All in the Family began to talk about sex. And Archie Bunker, who was a U of M graduate, you know, would, um, as soon as Meathead would talk about sex with, uh, um, what's his name's daughter, whatever the character's name was. I would, don't know these characters. I'm sorry. Would would just go, um, Archie Bunker, Archie. Archie would go, I don't talk about that stuff out here in public. You know, and, and they were obviously, they were living with the parents and had an active sex life. I was like, oh, they're at it again. Oh, turn on some loud music. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. we just deny it. And Edith would go, ow, Archie. <laughs> <sighs> and 
And then the spinoff shows from that, songs, uh, current animated shows like Family Guy mm-hmm. do a takeoff on the Archie Bunker theme with them singing a song together at the beginning of the show. Mm. Um, you know, there are these, um, we keep certain elements in culture and we keep expanding it and making it wilder. You know, I grew up with Archie and Bullwinkle, mm-hmm. but my granddaughter is aware of a character named Archer, mm-hmm. who is uh, one of the more totally inappropriate characters ever in a cartoon series, or the one about the aliens where there's a cyclops and, you know, um, an American dad. And these car- cartoon shows for adults, which I really think the Rocky and Bullwinkle show was meant to be, but it is through that media where we're beginning to change the culture at a younger level and putting it into cartoons. I know what I was bemoaning yesterday. Back in the 70s, I was part of a training called the Social Seminar. And it was a values clarification program. And those of us that got trained, and the whole issue was it was sponsored as a drug prevention effort Mm -hmm. to get children in third, fourth, fifth grade to think about their choices and their values. At the same time, right before it, Another actress named Marlo Thomas, daughter of Danny Thomas, a famous comedian from the 50s and 60s. Um, Marlo had a show called That Girl, and she put out a wonderful album that became an animated movie called Free to Be You and Me. you yes. giving me a blank. you familiar yes, with yeah, that? Yes, I'm right there with you. Okay, Free to Be You and Me. And it was a whole, like Rosie Greer was singing a song on the album about It's All Right to Cry, this great big husky football player, you know, in a video going, it's all right to cry. Mm-hmm. Crying gets the sad out of your eyes. You know, and he, he wasn't even as melodic as I am, but, you know, and so it attacks so many stereotypes. And then as the more liberal way of thinking about, hmm, let's have discussions about things we hold to be true and see if we really want to hold them to be true still, then we had the Maybell Morgans of the world emerge, How to Keep Your Man. And it was all about the homogenous heterosexual life as good because it's Christian mm-hmm. was the whole promotion thing. And so this effort to try to get values clarification as part of the regular school curriculum, even in Montana, it got unfunded overnight. Yeah. Just stopped. It wasn't, a, it wasn't on sexuality or religion. It was things like getting kids to think about the environment and making smart choices. This is 1973, you know, way before the words global warming were even on the palate. Mm-hmm. There was an effort by people to get us to think responsibly about the environment and about our choices and how to be a good friend, which is, of course, where all good relationships begin anyway. Mm-hmm. And we blew it. We're still working on it, I think. Uh, some of us. <laughs> well, you know, um, I have this crew of volunteers that have been listening and reading the stuff. I go, you know, you know, you never heard of these feminist singers, but you should give them a listen. And they've been giving me some of the metal music to listen to, which isn't easy for me. You're trading. Yeah. And catching up and going, oh, okay. I hear the same theme, just done in a gravelly voice by an angry person. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds angry to me anyway. Well, so part of the show is group kegels. Names, please. Uh, uh, uh. Ah, do 
doing them now? Yeah, see, you're like so many of my guests where I just say the word kegels and they start clenching. So what I'm thinking is I'm going to play a clip of this video, Heterosexuals, the First Perverts. While it's playing, we can do kegels, get stronger, and then afterward I have one more question from you. And then I want to know uh, what homework you would suggest for our listeners. Before there was heterosexual and homosexual, before there was a and bi and pan and omni, there was attraction, just plain attraction to beautiful. <coughs> Take for example the Greeks. They were not concerned with the sex or gender, even the age of who they were attracted to. People didn't think of themselves in these terms before the advent of psychology and sexology in the last century. A person's beauty justified attraction to that person. The person's sex was secondary. So men had sex with men, women, boys, girls, and no one talked of labels. Then centuries passed and the world changed. In the United States, 1892, a doctor by the name of James D. Kiernan published and presented an article he wrote for the Chicago Medical Recorder. In this article, he described a mental condition he called heterosexuality. He took the Greek heteros, meaning different, and the Latin sexualis, referring to sexuality, to create heterosexuality, a different sexuality than what was normal at the time. At this time, procreative sex was normal sex, baby-making sex, any abnormal form of sexual gratification, and you would be considered a sexual deviant. To Kiernan and consequently his colleagues, heterosexuals were a risk to society. What do you think is a good replacement for the term heterosexual? Heterosexual, pleasure with people. Pleasure people? Plez peep. Pleasure with people? Then what? Then would we distinguish it from homosexuality? Why? So then there's the it's people sex. who have sex for procreation, and there's heterosexuals. Um, which are essentially people who have sex for pleasure. Yeah. I have a hard time believing that, although I suppose there are people that practice the missionary position with certain constraints. I don't know. Maybe you would know. Do people have sex and not have any pleasure at all on either side? Yes. That's so sad. Also, I think that if we describe heterosexuals as people who have pleasure, they also sometimes have sex for procreation. Yeah. Language, so tricky. Still not sure what to do about well, it. You know, I, I had fun making, ma helping make both of my children. That's great. Some people even orgasm during childbirth. Uh -huh. So not just making them, but oh, yeah. birthing them. Kind of touches all the same points. So a new term for heterosexual. I really like the terms androphile and gynophile, referring to more of an attraction to the androgynous characteristics. Yeah. But yeah, again, you know, I think there's a total breakdown. You know, and, and the one that, that, needs to that just baffles people is bisexuality, you know, which for me I just define as people attracted to people and sometimes they have sex. <laughs> I love that, Anne. Yeah. Um, what homework do you have for our listeners? Jeez. Any homework assignment? Yeah. In the privacy of your own home, mm -hmm. take all your clothes off. Mm -hmm. Try to get two mirrors. Okay. Hopefully full length and give a good look at your body. And instead of looking at the curves you wish that weren't there or anything else, just go, huh, it's a body. It <laughs> walks, it talks, it carries me around, it lifts things. Pretty functional, eh? 
Okay, and some people have physical limitations, but everybody that I know, even the quadriplegics that I know, have appreciation of what they can do with their body. So appreciate the body. Then in terms of heterosexuality, homosexuality, now just take one mirror, put your face in front of it, look into your eyes, not your eyebrows, not your eyelashes, look into your eyes like a lover would look into your eyes and take one hand and put it on your cheek like a lover would touch your cheek. And if you can sincerely say this, I love you. I really, really love you. All of your things that don't always work out right matter nothing to me. I love you. <laughs> okay. That's so sincere. Well, it is so hard to do yeah. when you're being very genuine to look in your own eyes like a lover would look into your eyes and to caress yourself gently and to give yourself unconditional love. If we need to learn anything, mm -hmm. it is that ability to love other people unconditionally. In my work with some of the more behaviorally horrid people on the planet, offenders that are spending 20 years in prison for crimes that are, and some of them unspeakable. I cannot effectively do that work with cons and ex-cons if I weren't able to see that underneath all of their behaviors, they are a lovable human being. Even the ones that I'm very happy, they stay locked up mm -hmm. because they don't have control of behavior. And until they do, that's different. But, you know, but th th those are a small part of, well, it's in a bigger part of our population, we realize. But being able to look at yourself and love yourself makes it so much easier then to look at anybody else who you may perceive as different and know that if you can extend that unconditional love to them as a human being, as a disaster responder for the American Red Cross. I see this when I go on a disaster assignment. People, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, in a time of crisis, it doesn't matter. People are human with each other and help and love each other to the fullest extent possible. And people are all the time telling me that they discovered things about themselves they didn't know they could do when confronted with devastation of everything they think creates normal. And then they meet their neighbors for the first time as they're trying to even figure out, was this my house or your house? Because the cement pads all look the same when everything's been carried away by a storm. And trying to love each other in that context, it's a beautiful experience watching people have that and that they tend to keep it. My daughter teaches in New Orleans, has been there for four years now as a sixth grade teacher um, in an all-black school. And she is a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed northern girl in love with a culture that she met post-Katrina, where the spirit of love is generating more and more participation. And like people forgot about some of the awful that they used to live in. And they had to get a new start. And the communities are being more cooperative and changing. Doesn't mean there's no violence, but it's a different thing, how people respond to it culturally. And as we respond with love to each other, 
person by person, we do ourselves a favor. And I, I think you know our, our sexuality and our sexual expression will just plain fall in line once we remember our our most central human nature is to love. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. That's beautiful. It's so good, because I think what you're asking is for us to do our best to reset even how we see each other, or how we see ourselves and how we care about ourselves and uh, appreciating our differences, our, our heterosexuality, if you will, but also looking at the ways that we maybe categorize ourselves and mm-hmm. push on that. Yeah, it's great, great teaching. Thank you, Anne. You're welcome. How Wonderful. much fun was this? So fun. Yeah. So good. Oh, thank you. I also want to thank Cinema Studios and Complexly for the production assistance, Count Boogie for the jingles, and <laughs> say as usual, Ancora Amparo, I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs>